0: content that i have listened to and can recommend and that i know you have listened to and enjoyed as well is a podcast called surfing the discourse by oh that's a good uh, name
1: it is a good name i wonder where he came up with that from it's good he's got a funny accent it's
0: it's uh, it, it can all be recommended and now we've endorsed you i just have a bad feeling that the next episode will be the problem with jewish people G'day! Welcome to Surfing the Discourse. This is the show where we deep dive into the conversations happening right now and we try to figure out who's talking sense and who is talking nonsense. And a couple of guys who certainly are not talking nonsense are the Decoding and the Gurus fellas, as you heard there in the intro. They gave a very kind shout-out to this show. Uh, very gratified to hear that. Thanks, Matt and Chris. Bloody good on you guys. There's a bit of trivia revealed in uh, what they kind of alluded to there in their shout out, which was that uh, there's something funky going on with the name of this podcast, Surfing the Discourse. They sort of implied that perhaps the origins of the name are a a mystery or perhaps not so much of a mystery. In fact, yes, I did. I got the name, Surfing the Discourse, from uh, Chris and Matt's playful, pejorative term that they apply to people who surf the discourse, as it were, who try to have opinions on every topic and generally have fairly superficial, shallow opinions. And so that's more or less what I'm up to here. So I thought, you know, serving the discourse, is a, a, it's a good name. It rolls off the tongue. It's a good name. Don't try to uh, make it into an acronym, though. I, I, I urge you, please, don't don't try to do that. All right. So what are we going to be covering today? We have on the agenda... Eric Weinstein being interviewed on Chris Williamson's Modern Wisdom podcast. So I'll just give a brief overview of both of these characters for anyone who might not be familiar with them. Eric Weinstein, who is he? He's a hedge fund manager for Teal Capital, which is no slouch I think in the financial world. He is a podcaster, he is a an intellectual, a peerless intellectual, one might say. He's got his fingers in many pies. Uh, that is, he's a mathematician, he's a physicist, he's a political commentator, he's an economics egghead, he's uh, he's everything. He, some might call him a, a polymath, others might be less charitable and, and refer to him as a dilettante. Uh, we'll see, we'll see what we think based on the content covered in this particular episode. Chris Williamson, who is he? Well, it seems he was propelled into the public spotlight when he appeared on a reality tv show called love island in britain and so it seems like i'm not too sure it seems like he's parlayed that little bit of fame that he acquired there into a podcasting platform where he's been very successful it seems he's he's amassed a fairly sizable audience he's got plenty of episodes and for the most part it seems like he speaks pretty reasonably in what he says Though we will have a couple of criticisms, sorry to say, uh there, Chris. If you if you happen to stumble upon this podcast, I had honestly hoped that I wouldn't have any criticisms of Chris, so as not to come across as like a, a too hypercritical, too fault finding, too much of a grumpy bastard. But I feel like there is a valid criticism to make, and we'll see what that is as we go along. Now. This interview that Eric did on Chris's podcast was three hours, so they cover a lot of ground, although most of it is centered around the usual topics for Eric Weinstein, if you're familiar with him, mostly stuff that's sort of anti-institution, he's very much not a fan of our institutions, Very takes a very dim view of them. But we'll just ease into it now with a clip of Eric talking about his recent holiday that he had with his family. They were traveling through Europe. They had a wonderful time. And here he is talking about the beauty of that trip.
2: I was not prepared for the level of beauty that we encountered. Uh, There is a level of beauty that I've only experienced two, maybe three times in my life that sort of leaves you physically sick, like ill. It's so beautiful that you're your body is the weak link. Like you, you might think that sugar is tasty, but if you were to eat a bag of sugar, you'd probably be sick to your stomach. And I would say this was like so much beauty that it was at an almost pathological level and more than more than I think my family could really take in. We we're just so
0: moved. I'm so confused by this. Really? <laughs> you get physically ill when viewing things that are beautiful is like is this a thing do people do people actually get sick i would have thought no i would have thought like if that was the case there'd be i don't know there'd be like vomit buckets all throughout the louvre or something you'd see people projectile vomiting off the, <laughs> the grand canyon like really to me it's more plausible that him and his whole family were like traveling through Turkey or something. And they had, they ate some dodgy kebabs. That was it. They had some dodgy kebabs. <laughs> They're all back in the hotel room, like vomiting <laughs> after a day of sightseeing and eating kebabs. And Eric's like, oh shit, The bloody happened again. It must have been all that bloody beauty, eh, gang? Uh, honestly, though, I wouldn't be super surprised if that was his actual read on the situation. Like his views just can get that peculiar. So we'll see more of that as we go along. So now we enter into a chapter on Jeffrey Epstein. So they talk about this for some time. Chris Williamson had asked him about a meeting that Eric had apparently had with Jeffrey at some point. And so Eric's going to give his opinion. He's going to give his views on that meeting and what he thinks of Jeffrey Epstein. And in true Eric form, he's kind of very jumbled in his views, he doesn't have a coherent sense, it seems, of what the hell he's talking about. He kind of puts a lot of things on the table, a lot of anomalies. He's like, well, there's this weird thing, and there's this weird thing, there's this other weird thing. But he seems to lack the inclination to try to assemble all of this into some kind of logical structure to actually show how they, these ideas connect. So this is a, a kind of theme that I've noticed in Eric. And so we'll see some of that. So the first clip, this is the most concrete he gets about Jeffrey Epstein. And this is a thesis that he's kind of put forward in this episode of the podcast, but also on a portal episode that he had done previously about Jeffrey Epstein. So here he is talking about what he thinks Jeffrey Epstein
2: is. So my take on it, and my take on it instantly was this is not an actual human. This is a construct of someone's. Someone has created a fake human being called Jeffrey Epstein, who's a mysterious currency trading financier with crazy rules so that no one would ever invest with him.
0: Okay, okay. So he elaborates on this point in particular in that Portal episode, which, uh, so I won't play any clips, but I'll just summarize the view. The idea is that Jeffrey is a construct. He was, he's a fake billionaire kind of planted by some intelligence agency, Eric Thinks probably a foreign intelligence agency, but perhaps domestic as well. The purpose of which is to, he says, control people in positions of power, positions of influence or wealth. And so presumably, he he doesn't say this explicitly, but I guess the implication is that Jeffrey is doing it by gathering compromat or like compromising material on them. He's secretly recording them, engaging in... Compromising acts which they wouldn't want to be released to the public and thereby controlling them, but this view doesn't really jibe with a lot of the other stuff that Eric says about him, so we'll play some more clips so here's Eric talking about his meeting with Jeffrey Epstein, in particular he's going to talk about how Jeffrey Epstein <laughs> seemed to be hunting him in some weird way,
2: and then there was some sort of like you know. Uh, Remember that, that story, The Most Dangerous Game, where a man invites you to his island so he can hunt you? You know, it, this was scary, and it was, it was meant to be scary.
1: Sounds menacing.
2: Well, I think his product was silence. People think that his product was sex or finance, but it was silence, I, I'm pretty sure.
1: How you What's that mean?
2: If you're scary enough—look, uh, rich people can get sex— but they can't necessarily get people to shut up afterwards.
1: Okay.
0: There's a few things to comment on there because that's weird. So first of all, I I don't really see how to reconcile that with the idea that he is a construct for the purpose of blackmailing powerful people. So his product is silence. So who's the product going to? Okay. He said, That wealthy people can get sex, but they can't get people to shut up afterwards. Presume like my take on that. The only thing I can, the only way I can make sense of it is that wealthy people want to have sex with people, but they don't want those people then talking about it. So Jeffrey makes that happen. That's his product. But then, but really he's just pretending to provide that product or service because he's actually controlled by an intelligence agency. I don't know. But in case that wasn't confusing enough, uh, we'll get some more of Eric's insights into Jeffrey Epstein. So this clip is from an episode of The Portal, Eric's podcast, in which he's going to talk about the first meeting that he had, or the only meeting that he had with Jeffrey Epstein, and how apparently he was being tested throughout this meeting in weird ways.
2: You're going to serve me food on a tablecloth made out of the flag of my country, or perhaps you're going to give me a beverage that might spill on the American flag? Is this a test of some kind of my loyalty to my country or whether I have some sort of morality that isn't burdened by some petty reverence to an inanimate object? I couldn't tell what was going on, but I started getting extremely agitated and in fact, angry. And I think my, my feelings involved an expletive, which is F the person who decided that this was a good idea to put an American table uh, flag as a tablecloth to test new people coming to the house. My recollection is also, that in order to um, test our willpower and concentration, that Jeffrey would bounce this woman occasionally, that she would giggle uh, in order to test our resolve as to whether we could stay focused in the conversation.
0: Okay, so you're being tested in all these ways by Jeffrey and presumably the whole intelligence apparatus behind him. What exactly are they testing you for, Eric? They want to know if you have a, a an allegiance to the flag. They want to know if you have good concentration abilities. Why exactly? Perhaps they want to recruit Eric. Perhaps they're looking to get another smart head into the gang. Not really sure. Eric doesn't spell it out. It's not clear. So just in case you weren't confused enough about what Eric's opinions are on Jeffrey here, yeah, here's some more confusion to add to the welter Okay, so the setup here is that Eric thinks that the scientific establishment in America is underfunded and neglected, and so Jeffrey Epstein is somebody that funds a lot of science or had funded a lot of science, so this is a weird kind of clip in which Eric is going to imply that he at one point felt positively about Jeffrey in his funding of science, and Yet he, at the same time, somehow thought that he was a construct potentially of a foreign intelligence agency. Don't know how that squares,
2: but here you go. We are not protecting our scientific assets. In fact, when Jeffrey Epstein came back out of prison, uh, I think if I recall correctly, I tweeted that Jeffrey Epstein was somebody who was uh, funding what the American government refused to fund. And I recall, if if I'm not uh, being too self-kind, that I said, welcome back, with a period rather than an exclamation
0: point. Okay, just pausing it there. So he actually tweeted, welcome back, at Jeffrey. And now he's like soft peddling it by saying, well, I'd, I didn't use an exclamation mark when I said, welcome back, Jeffrey. Like, it kind of seems to me, you know, I'm just speculating, that Eric was really disgruntled about the issue with the lack of funding and so he was taking this like contrarian take on jeffrey when he got out of prison saying welcome back at least we've got you funding science and i'm wondering how this jives with the idea that he's a construct because keep in mind this is in the same episode in which he's sort of laying out that thesis so i'm confused uh i'll play the rest of the clip though oh by the way i tried to find the tweet and i couldn't i I think it's been deleted so eric's obviously not wanting people to actually see that, which makes me kind of think like maybe they did have a more favorable view of Epstein at the time. Not, not too sure. This is pure speculation.
2: Dismayed that we are fundamentally leaving this open. We left a niche for such a person to start exploiting us. If Jeffrey Epstein was able to find this niche, then I believe that other nations will be able to find it as well
0: okay so he's saying that the reason he didn't give him an exclamation point was because he's there's a bit of dismay there as well he's happy that jeffrey's funding it but there's a dismay because Jeff, you know it's jeffrey he's he's the one funding it uh it's weird it's a weird take i don't know what to make of it and he's saying if jeffrey can find it then presumably some other countries can find the exploit too what like what is the exploit that you can come in and fund research and presumably control it, I guess, is the implication. So this would imply that researchers are totally beholden to the funding interests. And I'm not sure if I, I feel like it's certainly not that clear cut. I don't imagine it is that easy to come and co-opt the scientific establishment in the U.S. Like, OK, you can you can get them to do research research cool it sounds kind of sounds like a good thing i'm not really sure there's probably more intricacies to that situation that i'm not aware of but it's it's also weird how he's talking about well jeffrey stumbled across this this possibility but jeffrey i thought was a construct of an intelligence agency so the thing that he's worried about happening might have already happened but he doesn't actually like acknowledge that it's odd it's really odd so We'll take a brief break from Eric's views here and see what Chris had to say on the matter. So this is Chris responding to Eric having told him about the meeting that he had with Jeffrey.
1: The thing that's intre- that I'm finding myself intrigued by here is it takes a moderate amount of cognitive horsepower to be able to piece together this theater that you sat down at. Yeah. Deployed in a nefarious, malicious, manipulative way. Mm-hmm. But it's smart. What do you mean it's smart? Say more. It's, it's not something that could be done by a simple mind. Not exactly sure what he's
0: driving at there, but this kind of gets at a general gripe that I had with chris throughout this podcast which is that he just kind of goes along with whatever eric is saying no matter how wild it gets no matter how batshit it sounds chris is kind of like nodding along and saying yeah well that would mean this and so we'll see more examples of that uh turns out it's it's going to be revealed that chris does have a more reasonable interpretation of things i think He, he has a more grounded worldview than eric and he reveals his skepticism for a lot of Eric's views. He does kind of challenge him in a very kind of diplomatic, agreeable way. But there's times in which he's not doing that. He's not asking the the tough questions. He's not actually like trying to get any clarity in what Eric's saying. So I feel like there is, he's doing this dance. He's trying to remain agreeable, which is, you know, that's understandable that you'd want to do that because That will ensure that the person likes you and that you'll be able to get other guests on your podcast in the future. So I understand the incentives there. Plus, maybe he's just naturally agreeable, finds it difficult to disagree. But when it gets to the point of Eric spouting views that are deranging of one's understanding of the world and how government works and ultimately contribute to a conspiratorial worldview then I kind of view it as a little bit irresponsible. Like if you really don't believe what Eric's saying and you do have the capacity to challenge him, at least ask the the right kind of questions, which I know Chris does, then I'm wondering why he doesn't do that more often. So... That's a general view that I had on Chris throughout this episode. And we'll, we'll see examples of that as we go. But for now, Eric's going to go on to talk about how the Jeffrey Epstein phenomenon has been kind of suppressed in the media and implying, or at least <laughs> maybe stating outright that there is some kind of collusion, coordination going on between whatever intelligence agency is, has constructed Jeffrey and the mainstream media. So here's some of that.
2: You have these fictions like, you know, that are put out by mainstream media or traditional news desks, which is, and nobody cares about that story. Well, that you can see from social media that that's not true from the internet. Jeffrey Epstein is an example of what I've called an, an anti-interesting phenomenon, something that would normally be fascinating. Imagine, for example, you had a story where you could get a Pulitzer Prize for breaking it. Everybody cares. you sell papers like hotcakes, blah, blah, blah. And nobody wants to report on it. And it's like right there. You could just ask the dumbest questions. And it would, like, New York Times says, disgraced financier. Well, tell me, did you find his prime broker? Did you find the forms? Did you go to his offices in Vollard House? No, nobody does, ever. The story is anti-interesting. And it's very different than being uninteresting.
1: Which would suggest more collusion more coordination hello
0: is this really true though does the media refuse to cover jeffrey epstein do they act as though he's not interesting that's certainly not my experience i mean you can just google it you'll see no shortage of articles written about jeffrey epstein there's been apparently no real slowdown in in the coverage of the guy and Eric was implying there that nobody's interested in the mysteries surrounding his fortune. And he mentioned specifically the New York Times, but you can find, you can literally find a New York Times article called uh, the title of which is Jeffrey Epstein's fortune may be more illusion than fact. So I'm confused as to why Eric thinks that this has just been totally glossed over. Perhaps there's not enough articles for his liking on the on the subject. And look, to be fair, I think there is a lot of Weirdness surrounding Jeffrey Epstein, so there are anomalies there are there's strangeness there's room for conspiracy thinking, I think, but obviously Eric is somewhat more florid and unconstrained in his theorizing than perhaps it's reasonable to be so for instance, Jeffrey Epstein, his fortune obviously is questionable. I think you can probably make sense of it in the fact that he you know he did have a financial background, he started a company. He'd worked for Bear Stearns, which was a bank back in the 90s or 80s. He had managed to insinuate himself in with a lot of other wealthy people. It looks like he was engaging in kind of dodgy financial practices, like not necessarily trading. Things like helping wealthy people move their money offshore and things of this nature. There's some indications that he was running kind of schemes, scams on wealthy people and so you can kind of see how he might have amassed a bit of a fortune. He's a bit of a liar. He's a bit of a dodgy operator. You know, he's into some weird shit. There uh, seems to be credible reports that he had, that he did in fact have hidden cameras kind of embedded all over his properties. And so it's it's kind of plausible that he might have tried to, at certain points, get some dirt on people so that he could blackmail them. That doesn't sound too far-fetched to me, but that's ultimately a very far cry from the florid picture that Eric is painting of the idea that Jeffrey is a construct of an intelligence agency. I think that so many of the observations that Eric has made here are just impossible, very difficult at least, to reconcile with this view. Anyway, Eric continues from that previous clip. He's going to keep talking about the plausibility of media coordination and doing things like suppressing the Jeffrey Epstein story. By the way, like, so it's a, it's, it's a far-reaching conspiracy if it is a real thing. Uh, it involves mainstream media. It just gets more and more kind of out of hand and implausible the more of these pieces you add. And, of course, Eric doesn't bother to try to make it make sense he's just throwing out all these ideas without you know he's just littering a bunch of thoughts and you're supposed to pick them up and (laughs) dispose of them how you will so yeah he's going to continue now talking about how the twitter files reveals coordination uh, of the the media with the government
2: we now know like post Elon Musk's 44 billion dollar adventure at Twitter that there are these coordinating groups coordinating coordinating social media with the intelligence community or with the Department of Homeland Security or with the State Department. We now know that we're living in an orchestrated co- you know curated choreographed world. And we can't know it officially, but we all know it if we want to know. It, which is hysterical. Now we have to talk about it. Well, are you a conspiracy theorist? Like I I read <laughs> I read the slack messages. I read the emails. What 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 are you even talking about now?
0: Seems kind of hyperbolic to me. We we're living in an orchestrated world because of the examples revealed in the Twitter files. Like uh, the examples I recall were the 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 executive branch, right, so Biden administration they requested some naked pictures of hunter biden to be taken down that was that were their requests and they were indeed taken down there were some examples shared i think of fbi requests to take information down relating to i think the idea is that they were combating or attempting to combat election misinformation so misinformation about the election and a couple of those posts that they flagged were seized upon by people who wanted to make a big deal out of it because they were obviously jokes. And that's fair enough, though, as people were making jokes about the date of the election, saying, oh, why don't you Republicans come along and vote on this date? Something like that. But they were actually taken down by Twitter. So Twitter sort of takes these... Rec- requests by the various agencies and reviews them to see whether or not they should take them down and it seemed to me like they were just earnestly trying to figure out which ones ought to be taken down based on their terms and services and they were doing that responsibly for the most part and without too much political bias like maybe a slight bias i'm not sure i haven't done the full analysis but it seemed fairly innocuous fairly benign ultimately like maybe there's a couple of more egregious examples someone could point out, but certainly Eric's claim there that we live in an orchestrated world, as revealed by the Twitter files, that is hyperbolic. My God, that there's just there's no relation to the actual facts of the matter. Okay, so now Eric is just on this anti-establishment buzz, so he's going to continue talking in this vein. So here we go with some more clips.
2: Uh, we stopped prosecuting all sorts of types of people. You know, I, look, we we stopped holding hearings. I grew up in a world where we had the church committee, the Pike committee looking at our own intelligence services. We had Watergate hearings. We had uh, tobacco hearings. We had Iran-Contra hearings. Do you know how many hearings we need right now? Where, where are these things? It's ridiculous. <laughs>
0: Okay, so everything has run amok in Eric's view. Here, the the institutions are out of control. We're no longer running these hearings to try to catch malfeasance, wrongdoing in the act, and this lack of oversight helps to explain the dire situation we're in with our dysfunctional institutions. And so he loves to bring up the examples of the Pike Commission and the Church, uh, sorry, Pike Committee and the Church Committee. These were congressional committees, temporary committees, that were created back in the 70s, I think, after it came to light that the FBI and CIA were up to all sorts of dodgy stuff, and to be fair, there was a lot of dodginess there. There was like legitimate racism going on within the FBI, for instance, as they targeted people within the civil rights movement, like Martin Luther King. There was targeting of communist groups, because this was, I think, in the aftermath of the McCarthy era, where everyone was paranoid about communism. They targeted anti-war movements, and so on. So so they were a product of their time, right? And they were doing dodgy things in the service of principles and ideals that we wouldn't sign off on today. Sensibilities have shifted, the culture has changed. So anyway, there, there were these committees assigned to investigate this stuff, and they brought to light a lot of shady activity and so this is kind of what eric is referring to now what he leaves out of the picture and what often gets left out when you when people cite these historical examples of government agencies doing this dodgy stuff is that in the wake of this there are all sorts of reforms that get set up the stuff comes to light there's a massive scandal and the system is kind of patched so as to prevent this kind of stuff from happening in future. In the future. So, for example, in the wake of these two committees' reports, what happened, you know, over the next few years, there were all sorts of acts introduced to prevent this kind of stuff from happening again. There was, I've just got a list here, uh, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, FISA, which was a law that established procedures that need to be followed when attempting to gather foreign intelligence on domestic soil, And this included the establishment of a court to oversee any requests for surveillance warrants. So now intelligence agencies had this oversight they needed to, if they wanted to conduct surveillance covertly, then they'd need to get permission. And there's a a special court assigned to grant that permission. There was the Intelligence Oversight Act, and that required government agencies to report any covert actions that they were performing to permanent committees uh, in the House and the Senate. And there's the Privacy Protection Act, which protects journalists and newsrooms from search by government officials. And this kind of thing along, you know, along these lines. So I think that if you're going to make the case that, hey, you know, in the past, look at what happened here. Look at what the intelligence agencies got up to. Look at what the government did. Look at the Watergate scandal. You can't just extrapolate to today and say, therefore, this stuff is most likely happening today because that's a false equivalence. You have to take into account the fact that there were all these reforms introduced, there's been changes to the, the structural and operational details of how these systems, these organizations work. There's also been a kind of cultural shift such that it's more condemned, It's more there's more social opprobrium that would rain down upon you if you were caught engaging in this kind of activity. So the whole culture within these organizations has shifted and the structure of the, and systems in place have changed so as to make this stuff less likely to happen. So this offers an alternative explanation to what Eric is going on about here, which is that we don't have hearings anymore. Maybe it's just the case that we don't have as much need for it because there's just less wrongdoing. I mean, what's the alternative? So if, if all this stuff was happening back in the, the 60s and 70s, and we had, we had hearings at the time, like Watergate... And now Eric is saying, well, we don't have these hearings anymore. Isn't that strange? The implication is that there is just as much or perhaps more corruption, but that it is now kept under wraps in spite of the fact that there's all these new controls on this stuff happening. It just seems totally, (laughs) I mean, contrast it with the the alternative, which I just laid out, which is just that things are working better now. It's, It's more difficult to get away with this shit. So I don't know, which seems more plausible to you? All right, moving on. So they in the conversation they talked a lot about UAPs, that is the modern incarnation of UFOs, that's what we call them now. And Eric gave his usual take on this, and I'm not going to rehash it here. This is if you want to hear Eric's thoughts on the matter, check out some of the Decoding the Gurus podcasts on the topic if you haven't already. Those are very interesting. But uh, so I'm going to play a clip here that's sort of from the tail end of their chat about UAPs and just to give a sense of how Chris kind of plays along with Eric's ideas here. So listen to this.
2: And then maybe the idea is you've got a cover story. Maybe yeah. you've, you've got the, your, your adversary investing in things that don't make any sense. I don't know. But there's not nothing
1: here. This is not about mylar balloons and seagulls anymore. I'm trying to come up with a word for it, but it's like a, it's like recursive false flags yeah, in a way where the goal is not to give or hide truth, the goal but is, to fire hose with information so much that the truth can no longer be discerned.
2: It's a haystack of bullshit to make sure that any needle is very difficult to find. <laughs> it is.
1: Yes. Bullshit haystacking. I love like right. it. Yeah.
2: Okay, so yeah. they, they haystack the crap out of this thing.
0: Okay, so that's Chris going along with it, obviously. He's he's really uh, playing a supporting role for Eric's conspiracizing here. Is that a word? Conspiracizing? Conspiracy theorizing? Anyway, I'll play a few more clips of Chris's role here. So y- y- we'll see a kind of tension between, on the one hand, Chris being agreeable and going along with Eric's views, and then on the other hand, trying to push back with a little bit of Healthy skepticism. So here we
1: go. I wonder about this. Oh, how would you say? Epidemic of uncertainty. Brilliant. Speaking my language. And I wonder... How... First off, how, as an individual, you are supposed to put up any kind of effective defense to just take some sovereignty, being, you know, an agentic individual. Right. And secondly, I wonder what the end goal is. I I understand why uncertainty would be useful for manipulation, because if people can't discern truth from untruth, it can be easy to poke them and prod them and, and... float them in particular directions.
0: Okay, so pausing it here. So the context again is that they're talking about this idea that the goal is to confuse people by by putting out all this information and just making it so nobody can get a handle on on the truth, what's really going on. And so Chris has asked these two questions. He's kind of speculating about the matter. And so the first question is... (laughs) The first question is like, okay, well, how do we protect against this? And the second question is, what's the goal of the thing anyway? So I'm like, you kind of have those backwards, dude. Like if you're going to worry about the need to protect ourselves from it, wouldn't you first want to get straight about whether it's actually going on? And a key part of that is understanding why it would be happening, right? So it's like he's, he's accepted the premise. Yes, there is this attempt to fire hose the society with bullshit to confuse us uh how do we combat it and then he's like well why are they doing it though why why are they doing it like yeah reverse those figure it out (laughs) figure out in the first place why it is because if you can't come up with an explanation then maybe it's not actually happening and look i Chris knows. Chris doesn't buy it. I don't think he buys it. he's going to go on to express skepticism and I'll play that clip in a second. but I think what he's doing is you know he's j he again he's just going along with it that that was he, he was trying to come up with questions there to ask he's trying to come up with something to say, and his instinct of course is to go along with it and just yes and whatever Eric says but now okay, he'll continue playing the clip and he's going to express. Further skepticism, start sort of thinking aloud about what the logic is. So
1: listen to this. But it also seems like, no, kind of also useless as well. That some people, um, non-insignificant, a large cohort of people, will just reject it entirely, which actually what they're doing. Which actually makes it more chaotic and more unruly. If it was coordinated the outcomes that are occurring at the moment a lot of the time don't seem to be happening with people just oh roll over tell me exactly what to do there is a massive non insignificant cohort of people that say i'm checking out and i now no longer trust anybody at all and right. that doesn't or seem anything. yes and that doesn't seem to be if the goal was ease of control that doesn't seem to be effective for the person that wanted that or the group that wanted that to be the outcome
0: yep good that's a good skeptical take and it does show that Chris has a much more grounded view and we'll see some more of that as he's going to continue to push back a little bit gently but you know persistently um, throughout this whole little saga and so that's all very good I commend him for that and it's good to the extent that he was giving pushback. However, you know, there's, there is this dance that he does where he, he's letting through the gate just too many bad ideas, even though I'm pretty sure he doesn't agree with them, and yet he's sort of giving the impression that he does, and, and so effectively endorsing them to his audience of presumably millions of people. And so I, that's, that's not a good thing when you consider that what it's doing potentially is sowing distrust in institutions unnecessarily, so... That's my criticism. But anyway, we'll continue to see more of Chris pushing back on Eric. The clips I'm going to play now are part of this interesting segment where Chris repeatedly tries to get Eric to address this point of like, are people being overly conspiratorial and sort of seeing patterns where there are none? And Eric just kind of like refuses to directly answer the question.
2: And so what you're having is you're having a large number of people waking up to the idea that, yeah, there really are organizations and working groups that determine what you hear from a multiplicity
1: of venues. It's the same message relentlessly. Do you think people are overly pattern matching that now? Say more by by what you mean. That they're seeing conspiracy where there isn't? Because the lack of faith in institutions. Same person is saying that they
2: see a conspiracy and they see no conspiracy. They have part of their head that remembers that conspiracy theorists are crazy people. And they've got part of their brain that remembers that normies who don't believe in conspiracies are crazy people. And they can't integrate those things. Right? They cannot figure out how are these things being coordinated? Am I a crazy person for seeing these patterns? Am I a crazy person for ignoring them? For believing them? For when when they're unearthed?
0: Okay, I'll just pause it there. So yeah, Chris is asking, you know, could it be the case that people are seeing things that aren't really there? And this is Eric saying no. (laughs) This is Eric saying no, because you know, people are in two minds. Is there a conspiracy, isn't there? But ultimately there's there's all this weird shit that they're picking up on. So yes, there is a conspiracy. So his his response to Chris there is no. He's just being mealy mouthed about it. Um, but I'll keep playing more of that clip. Um
2: what you're seeing is a complete destruction of bedrock reality that if you weren't actually physically there, how do we know that these people actually met in a warehouse? Is this really a table or is it just you know <laughs> CGI? Was it green and we could superimpose wood onto it? Nobody knows what's true. And you know, if you, if you asked me, well, Eric, how are you dealing with this? I would say I'm failing. I'm just flat-out failing, as are all of you.
0: I'm just more honest about it. I don't know if that's fair, Eric. I don't feel particularly confused about what's going on. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I don't know. You could probably, like, pull out some anomalies that I'd be kind of scratching my head about. But I think there's, you know, there's failing, and then there's failing, right? So as an analogy, like, suppose... We hear a noise outside and Eric's like, do you know what that was? And I'm like, nah, I don't know what that was. You know, maybe it was probably just like a bird or something. And Eric's like, well, no, actually, I think that was a dragon or that was a, a ghost or it could have been this or that. And he's like got this whole litany of possibilities. And he's like giving all these arguments for why it's one of one or the other of these things. So that's two different varieties of failing, right? So there's either staying more staid and grounded and not speculating beyond what is reasonable, even if you don't like have a, a concrete answer for every possible anomaly. And then there's the kind of fanciful, florid theorizing that Eric engages in. And I don't know, I'd rather fail the first way, to be honest. So yeah, if, if I'm failing, then I'd rather fail my way. Speaking of failed reasoning, we're not done by a long shot. We've still got more examples from Eric. So here he is talking about what we can call, or what Eric kind of calls the Noam Chomsky effect, which is when you have, so somebody like Noam Chomsky is a, an illustrious academic. He's gained a lot of credibility through his academic work. And then he kind of parlays his notoriety uh, into you know becoming a political commentator and saying things that are inimical to the sinister institutions, the institutional narrative, and they have no choice but to allow him to chatter away in this manner because of his success as an academic. And so Eric is talking about, in this next clip, how in today's age there is a countermeasure against this kind of thing happening. So... Is this.
2: But we're not seeing the Noam Chomsky effect, where you do amazing research and they have to put up with every crazy idea that comes through your mind. You can't have these dangerous people running around. That's why all of us are discredited. Maybe you haven't noticed this. But like Jordan Peterson is discredited. Sam Harris is discredited. Joe Rogan is discredited. Brett Weinstein is discredited. Ben Shapiro is discredited. Barry Weiss is discredited. Everybody
0: is discredited. (laughs) Mm, there's a few things wrong here. First of all, are they really discredited in the way he's implying? Like, it seems to me that really they're only discredited among the kind of political factions that they alienate with their particular views, right? So Joe Rogan is still incredibly popular and he's favoured on the right, as is Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro. Like, how, how have these people been discredited exactly? Uh, anyway, but more importantly, like, his whole point is that it's this Noam Chomsky effect, right? So people who gain credibility in an academic field then parlay that into the, into political commentary. But the, most of these people aren't academics. Like Joe Rogan, is he an academic? Jordan Peterson, perhaps. He's no Noam Chomsky, I don't believe. I don't know if he made much of an impact in his actual field, clinical psychology. But these people don't really fit the bill of what he's talking about. And so, so then the argument would have to be, well, okay, so these people, these are people with large audiences, big platforms. So the sinister, uh, shady organizations, whatever it is, they need to shut these people down. So <laughs> his reasoning just goes wrong on so many levels. Like A, they haven't really been discredited. I don't see how that is the case. B, they're still broadcasting their ideas to millions of people so they haven't been deplatformed uh, c they're not actually academics so this isn't an example of the noam chomsky effect like really what are you what are you saying just try to tighten up your ideas eric if you want people to take you seriously in fact no you don't actually need to obviously people uh, eric fans are already sympathetic to this kind of way of thinking i'm sure will just take this on board but really if you try to straighten out the logic you'll find that it's just a tangle it's just a rat's nest of just confusing ideas and they don't hang together in a sensible manner so one thing we can ask about this is whether eric is being deliberately dishonest and obtuse in his reasoning or whether it's just he's like unconsciously doing it because he's motivated by you know his underlying preconceptions and I'm not entirely sure, but there's an example from his Portal podcast in which he's talking about the same subject in which he says the way he's presenting something seems obviously dishonest, like it's it's deliberate. So he's going to talk about, I'll play this clip, he's going to talk about this list that the FBI used to uh, maintain of potentially dangerous people who, and I'm reading a quote here, who might commit acts inimical to the nation, defense, and public safety of the United States in time of emergency. And this did include uh, people like teachers, doctors, lawyers, entertainers, and other people. But this was discontinued in 1978. But just listen to this clip and see if it sounds like he's implying that this is still actively maintained. So here we go.
2: Is there any attempt to gain control of innocent influencers? That is, are there any circumstances in which people simply have the crime of being influential used against them? In fact, you can look for Section A of the Reserve Index, people to be rounded up in times of national emergency inside the United States. This might include professors, labor organizers, professionals, authors, the independently wealthy... In other words, there is very much an interest in keeping track of people who've done nothing wrong, but in times of national emergency, you might want to make sure that none of these people are capable of influencing the population.
0: It seems like he's using the present tense there in a kind of ambiguous and ultimately misleading way, I think. So uh, I haven't looked too much into this section A of the security index and whether it is dodgy, but uh, yeah, regardless, it was discontinued. 1978 and he doesn't seem to be acknowledging that fact so anyway another issue that I have with Eric's reasoning which is borderline dishonest I must say is this technique he uses where he kind of he'll there'll be something outrageous some outrageous claim but he'll blur it together with something that's kind of unexceptionable something that's totally uncontroversial uncontroversial reasonable and he'll blur them together as though they're like part and parcel and thereby imply that the outrageous thing is also reasonable. This is him continuing to talk about the idea of you know these innocent people being discredited because they pose a threat to, I guess, the, the organizations, the shady institutions. And so he's going to try to make this seem more reasonable by, by lumping it in with this concept, this known phenomenon called deconfliction. So, all right, here's the first clip. Personal
2: destruction is the coin of the realm. And some of the personal destruction that you see that looks organic is, is orchestrated as well. And we're just in this thing where, in my opinion, what you're looking at is something called deconfliction. But people don't know what that is.
0: Okay, so deconfliction is a real thing, a real phenomenon. It's where you have different agencies that might, as Eric, Eric puts it, trip over each other in the course of carrying out covert operations so there might be some like legitimate intelligence operation and some other agency might stumble across it they might start like investigating something that seems dodgy but then it turns out that that thing is actually part of a an operation conducted by another organization so they have measures in place to prevent this kind of thing happening and eric in this next clip is going to mention three systems that are apparently in place in the u.s to prevent this and then he's going to imply that there might be some kind of similar Protocol systems in place to ensure that ordinary citizens don't interfere with these covert operations. So here we go.
2: So the first thing I'd like to throw out is if we have three separate systems to keep like the intelligence community and local police departments from tripping over each other, what do you think we do when ordinary citizens get wind of something amiss that's some super secret operation? And my claim is we discredit them. We pre-bunk them in the language of the GEC, I believe. So now you have to pre-bunk the malinformation, which means destroy the reputation of the person spreading the information that's countering the official disinformation and misinformation.
1: So it, it, I can't work out why anybody's confused and why they're having trouble existing in the... Stay in school, kids.
2: Um <laughs> <laughs> the point is, I've got all of these friends who are pre-bunked malinformers.
1: That's what, what a I, club. What a club to that's be. That's what I do.
2: I'm a pre-bunked malinformant.
1: Did you catch
0: uh, Chris again playing along there? But so look at the maneuver that Eric is pulling here, and I think he, he does this quite often. So what it amounts to really is you take some batshit crazy idea, which is that you know all these figures, including him, are being discredited deliberately. And you pour in a few facts. In this case, the notion of deconfliction, which is legitimate. And then somehow you've rendered your entire argument more plausible, coherent. The thing is deconfliction in its ordinary incarnation within the intelligence community. That makes total sense. Like it's obvious why something like that should exist. It's uncontroversial. It's totally consistent with these organizations doing the things that they are supposed to be doing. But then his version of deconfliction is totally conspiratorial and it involves like government-wide conspiracies, coordination with the media, and you know operations that go against the interests of the people and need to be covert. So they're just not the same kinds of things and lumping them together doesn't make it so. So, all right, uh, he's, he's actually got another explanation. Like, this, this might be his ultimate explanation for why all this is happening, though. And uh, I think this should clear everything up, clear up all the confusion. This is a
2: joke. It's beyond preposterous. And, and by the way, it comes out of not loving your children.
0: All right. So there you have it. That's the real explanation. These people in positions of power don't love their children. Okay, good. I'm glad we got to the bottom of that. All right, so moving on from this particular topic to another one of Eric's hobby horses. So Eric thinks it's incredibly vitally important that we leave Earth, and we do so by using his particular theory of physics, which apparently is going to allow us to create portals to other worlds, I guess. He he takes this idea very seriously. So here, here they are discussing the importance of the need to actually leave Earth. So here we go with that.
1: Is going into planetary as useful? Is it the highest priority? The highest priority. You'll, you cannot stabilize this
2: place. I'm telling you that with CRISPR-Cas9, with the Teller-Ulam design, are you telling me that people aren't going to figure out how to come up with fun viruses and gain-of-function projects, and people are going to be able to do these, uh, you know, polymerase chain reaction, I think was taught in my daughter's high school. There's already too much leverage, too much leverage, too little wisdom, too many people.
0: Okay, so the genie's out of the bottle. There's all these potentially destructive technologies out there, and they can be leveraged by small numbers of individuals, perhaps. And so we are doomed that's his that's his idea here and so we need to leave earth uh but i don't know i can think of a couple of flaws here in his reasoning for instance (laughs) if we were to colonize other planets you know if we were to embrace his theory of physics figure out how to create a wormhole get ourselves to other planets well the the problem doesn't go away right if anything you've just further empowered bad actors with new technologies perhaps enabled by your theory of physics And so we're screwed in that scenario as well. So I don't really think that is the solution. Sorry to say, Eric. I think I would focus on canvassing all of the possible technologies that could be utilized by small numbers of bad actors for nefarious purposes and work out how to regulate these things. I don't know, take a very like precise surgical approach to this kind of thing rather than like giving up on earth. Maybe it would, uh, would be a good option. Perhaps just, just throwing out a, an alternative there for you, Eric. All right. So we're nearing the end of the episode here. We've got a few more clips to play. So here is Eric talking about the, the real purpose of his podcast, The Portal. And this connects with his desire to get us to leave Earth.
2: I guess that space is something that I wanted people to understand. When I named the show The Portal... And people did not understand. It wasn't intended to be a show. It's intended to be a search for the actual portal out of here.
0: I don't know. He's like interviewing porn stars and things on his show, right? He interviewed Riley Reed, porn actress. doesn't seem... uh, It's not totally clear to me how that is going to help us find the portal. (laughs) That might not be fair because he goes on to say something here that it's like the purpose of the show is more to inspire people such that they're like open to the possibility of finding a portal so he says this
2: we're supposed to inspire ourselves with beauty and luxury we're not supposed to consume it to pig out for status reasons we're supposed to get ourselves into a state where we can dream at an interplanetary level
0: okay so maybe some kind of defense could be constructed there where it's like listening to porn stars and becoming more open about sex or something is able to open the mind up and inspire one to dream and make one more receptive to leaving earth okay maybe maybe poetically that's i'll, I'll, I'll grant you that one all right so i've got another clip here that illustrates a few little points about eric and so this is the in the context of Eric and Chris discussing kind of transcendent things like art and how it can inspire and make one fill one's spirit with wonder or something. So here's this clip here.
2: You shook me all night long is, is a transcendent song. Yes, you shook me all night long.
0: You know, if that doesn't move you,
2: you need to check into someplace.
0: Damn it. I think I might need to get checked in somewhere. This is like the Lex Friedman episode all over again. Am I just such a a cold-hearted, callous-souled human that I, I, I don't feel in the way that these sensitive and tender souls do? Anyway, Eric is going to continue with an explanation as to why that song is so moving.
2: Those four notes recur in all of these songs that matter. It's basically Mary Had a Little Lamb with Fa thrown in as well. And there's a reason that they work. The second note brings up in your mind the uh, the thing called the fifth, the the dominant chord. The first note is spread between the, the tonic and the subdominant. The third note belongs to the tonic only, and the fourth note only belongs to the subdominant. And so this, this idea that Western harmony revolves around these ideas of the tonic, the subdominant, and the dominant, are carried by these notes. So even if you're not playing it on a chordal instrument, that, this pattern of four notes that keeps recurring grabs us because we know what the chords are behind it. And it's basically Mary Had a Little Lamb or Proud Mary, you know, but that's a great place to start for transcendence.
0: What do you think? Pretty innocuous stuff, right? He, he kind of got too much wrong there. There can't be too much wrong. He's just talking about music theory yeah, there. There's no issues. Well, actually, I can point out a few. Yeah, let me. Allow me. So, <laughs> first of all, his explanation is not really an explanation at all. He's saying that the, those four notes are transcendent essentially because they remind us of the chords that they compose, But he doesn't go on to explain why the chords themselves are transcendent. So it's kind of like this circular thing going on. Um, Also, the four notes that he's talking about, they don't guarantee transcendence, right? Like, he gave the example of Mary Had a Little Lamb. And I'm pretty sure that doesn't tend to induce a feeling of transcendence in most people. Also, you can have incredibly moving songs that don't use all four of those notes. So... It's like not totally clear why you would zero in on that as being transcendent. Transcendent. Also, the ultimate point that he's trying to make here could have been made much cleaner just by, you know, by sweeping away all of that detail there, all that music theory, and just saying, isn't it remarkable how music, like a song like this, can be transcendent? That's really the point. But I think... The reason that he goes into all these details, which nobody's going to, unless you have studied music theory, you're not going to understand what he's talking about. It's like a pretty niche market. The reason he does it, I think, is classic Eric. He's trying to trot out his smarts so that, you know, parade, parade it for everyone to see using technical jargon that is highly specialized and ultimately serves, in this case, only to show how smart Eric is as opposed to actually making a coherent and easily understandable point and Eric does this all the time if you want to see more examples of that then again listen to decoding the gurus there are some interesting instances of that kind of thing going on anyway that was the last clip actually no I'll play one more clip so one thing to note about Eric is that he uses very florid language very jargon heavy language he loves his metaphors and often that can distract from the point that he's trying to make and, and ends up obfuscating the, the point. So it's not like well used, but sometimes he's pretty good at it. I think he's just hit and miss. And so there was, there was one analogy that I liked in what he said uh, when he was describing Jeffrey Epstein. So listen, listen to this.
2: And if you look at Jeffrey Epstein's wealth, it was beaten. It was like gold beaten into gold foil so that it could cover a vast area and leave the impression of a solid gold life.
0: Come on, that's nice. That's a that's a, a nice metaphor. I like it. It conveys the point well. It's got some good imagery. It's evocative. Beautiful, beautiful. And that's, that's Eric at his best. He does do that stuff pretty well. Um, ultimately, okay, so we'll start to summarize and wrap up here. So I do think that Eric Weinstein is... He's very smart. He is like, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he had a colossal IQ. He's a brilliant speaker. He is, he's got a a lot of knowledge, obviously. And his brain works quickly. It's very inventive, creative. And when he wants to be, he could be logical. Like when he's, he can be a careful thinker. But he obviously gets derailed quite a lot when his thoughts get carried away. (laughs) <laughs> in all kinds of fanciful reasoning patterns. And I think that ultimately the driver of this is the fact that he's kind of always engaging in motivated reasoning, right? So he has these strong preconceptions about the corruption of institutions. He's, he's got this kind of deep-seated worldview in which he's really going to take a, a negative view of everything that the government does and institutions do. And part of that is connected to personal grievances that he has um, again, consult decoding the gurus for more on this. But basically, he's got you know, his he's been denied a Nobel Prize. His family members, uh, Brett Weinstein, his brother, has been denied a, a Nobel Prize, and this is you know, Eric needs to explain why this is the case. You know, he, they deserve these prizes, but they've been thwarted by the system, and so he he's always coming up with like explanations that sort of allow him to preserve his self-flattering image of himself and his family. And so there's there's this motivated aspect to his reasoning here. And it ties in with his distrust of institutions, because it's always the case that the institutions have their boots on Eric's head, keeping him down in the dirt, ensuring that he doesn't receive a Nobel Prize, gain any attention. And yeah, so I think this is where Eric goes wrong. He's highly A highly motivated reason (laughs) and I don't mean that in a positive sense and it's a shame too because he is he's got a big brain he's got a good head on his shoulders and it's just not being used optimally is what I would say and okay so that's Eric he as we saw he's got a few of these tricks up his sleeve for obfuscating and making arguments appear stronger than they are he's got this tendency to just gish gallop throw out a whole lot of details and kind of hope that he'll leave the impression that he's made a solid argument he will blur together things that are totally unreasonable with things that are reasonable and hope that that's made the argument sounder and so he'll use all these kinds of techniques and i'm totally unimpressed by a lot of the the arguments he made and, and hopefully you agree on at least some of the the specifics that i brought up but that's eric Eric done and dusted for now. What about Chris Williamson? Chris, I think, is much more inclined towards a reasonable worldview, much more grounded. I think his intuitions are well aligned with the more accurate picture of reality. The trouble is, and I don't want to overstate this, it, it's not a scathing indictment. It's just that he could do better in pushing back. It's not like he didn't give any pushback to Eric's ideas here. But he was far too sympathetic, far too accommodating for a lot of the wackiest views that Eric was spouting there. And so he gives the impression to his audience that he is endorsing the ideas. And that's just not a good thing when those ideas really kind of pollute your epistemics. They kind of pollute your belief system with nonsense, really. And so, yeah, I I, Ideally I'd like to see him push back more but again he's he's kind of got to toe this line between staying agreeable and trying to sustain a kind of reasonable take on things and he there was a little bit of that but I guess I'd just want to nudge him more in the direction of pushing back more forcefully particularly when the ideas are potentially consequential you know for the audience believing them or not believing them also So I was talking to a friend about Chris Williamson because he listens to his podcast. And so he seemed to agree with me that Chris does have this kind of chameleon-like quality in a a conversation. He'll be very agreeable and really emphasize or or help to give voice to the ideas of his guest. And that can be a good thing if what you want is just to hear what the guest has to say. Um, Chris will give a good platform for that and allow the ideas to be aired unharassed basically so yeah it can be a good thing I guess you just want to be selective about when you push back a bit more so anyway that is about it thank you for tuning in once again and I'm sorry that this one might have been a little bit more rambly a little bit less structured and tightly organized Um, that was partly a product of the fact that eric just defied all my attempts to give a a neat like unified theory of eric which would allow me to structure the episode a bit better so so sorry if it was a bit meandery and haphazard but hopefully it was still enjoyable nonetheless and so i'll see you again hopefully in the next episode Uh, until then see you later adios goodbye